Hello, I'm Nicola, Senior Investments Reporter at New Model Advisor, and we're reporting from Citywide Studios in New York today. And I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Wenick, who is editor of CityWire RIA, our sister publication for financial advisors and planners based here in the US. Ian, hello. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, talking a bit to your audience and hopefully sharing what little I know about the US RA market. <laughs> what little you know. No, it's um, it's great to have you have you on the podcast and happy belated happy 4th as well of July. Thank you. <laughs> Which was yesterday for, for everyone listening. Um, so, Ian, you do tend to cover a lot of the mergers and acquisition news in the US sort of wealth and financial advice market. So I really want to kind of dig into some of the trends that you're seeing uh, in that area today. Um, I mean, to start off, there seems to be a real theme here now of kind of overvaluation or really high valuations of wealth and financial planning businesses here in the US. Is that fair to say? Like, it is, is, is there sort of an issue maybe of overvaluation that you're seeing play out? I think that valuations are obviously higher, but I think it's less overvaluation mm -hmm. versus I think how private equity firms view the underlying RA model. Mm -hmm. So I think if you break it down, if you're investing in an RA or any kind of financial advice business, I know whether it's maybe a wealth manager back in the UK, mm -hmm. what you're ultimately buying is you're buying the revenues and the cash flow that are generated by the underlying client portfolios. Mm -hmm. So think, you know, if you think for a second, how are those underlying portfolios generally allocated? Mm -hmm. You know, typical, I mean, it varies across client demographics and age, but in general, they're running basically like a standard 60-40 stock bond portfolio. So if I'm a private equity manager and I'm looking to generate just some smart beta, some smart beta, I can invest in an RIA. I can assume, you know, based with the S&P 500, how returns have been, you can probably safely assume a forward return of 4.5% a year. And then, you know, consider the fact that a lot of these businesses are generally growing. They have positive net client inflows on top of the market appreciation. So, you know, I always cite uh, Jim Kahn, who is the CIO and the M&A head at Wealth Enhancement Group, which is a big private equity back serial RA acquirer. And he says, you know, for a good RA, you can generally say as a rule of thumb that they'll bring in about 8% to net positive flows per year. So if you take 8% net positive flows, plus let's say an average 4.5% of market appreciation, well, that's a 12.5% annualized return before you've done what private equity does at all, which is put leverage on it. So let's say you, know, you put a turn or two or leverage on it, then you're getting to what, 18%, maybe a little bit better. And then, which obviously we can get into this, you can supercharge that return even higher by taking advantage of the multiple arbitrage and buying smaller RAs and adding their assets into the, adding their assets into the business. What you're seeing right now is that if you're a private equity fund owner, you can basically invest in an RIA and have as close to a guaranteed positive 20 plus percent return as possible at virtually zero downside risk to yourself. I mean, it's basically free money if you're a private equity manager. Okay, I see. So it's more, so I said overvaluation, it's more a, ref a reflection of the, the incredible growth that there is in the US market, would you say? 
Yes, I think that that's a. I think that, that is absolutely a fair way to assess it. You know, mm. the U.S. is obviously one of the biggest, most developed economies in the world. You know, basically the global financial standard bearer, and RAs are basically the easiest way to get exposure to the overall market performance while investing in a single private company. That's really interesting. I mean, when in the UK over the past couple of years, when we've seen this uptick, particularly in private equity investment, but also backing from like asset managers and acquisitions by asset managers in the wealth space, the kind of um, starting point, I think, for a lot of that was that the UK market has kind of historically been seen as very cheap. And a lot of these big players saw the advice market, the wealth market is as undervalued. So my question for you is, you know, for how long have you been observing this uptick in um, backing from private equity firms, from from large asset management firms? And did that start from a point of them them seeing bargains in that part of the market? So, you know, I've been covering the industry for a little bit more than five years now. Mm-hmm. And the trend of increased private equity investment in RAAs has been happening long before I joined. But it's definitely supercharged and accelerated within those last five years, especially so um, since 2020, the market, de- the sharp market decline, which I think caused some as the as the markets kind of recovered so quickly and snapped back so quickly, the valuations for these underlying firms grew quickly. So I mentioned Wealth Enhancement Group earlier. So in 2019, they went through a private equity recapitalization. They changed hands in terms of their private equity owner. They went from a firm called Lightyear Capital to a firm called TA, so to a firm called TA Associates. Mm. And the market had performed so well, and the valuation, the implied valuation of Wealth Enhancing Group had gone up so much in just 18 months that by the summer of 2021, TA Associates had already sold half their stake in Wealth Enhancement Group, which they had just bought 18 months before to another firm called Onyx Corporation for presumably a massive return. So that private equity trade should be illustrative of just how much sentiment around the industry has changed in the last couple of years. Now, obviously, there have been some kind of headwinds. I mean, the market decline in 2022 and in the early parts of 23 definitely played a role, I think, has caused the bill to pump the brakes. And another factor which we can get into, I think, has been a lot of the steel making. I mentioned multiple arbitrage. That was the product of the low interest rate environment that we've seen in the U.S. And I think that that change into a rising rate environment might put the brakes on some of this aggregation to a smaller to a smaller extent. Mm. But it was basically a perfect storm of just macroeconomic factors when you factor in the interest rate policy, the search for this search for safe return. And just the massive overall growth in markets all happening at the same time, it's what led to this bonanza we've seen the last three, four years. Yeah, okay. And then um, you mentioned the the market decline last year and also and also the higher rate environment we, we have now, right? Are you starting to see uh, the impact of that higher rate environment of you know on on uh, deals in the market in terms of you know, the refinancing of debt or um, whether maybe, yeah, that path has like slowed for some deals. Are you starting to see any evidence of that? Well, I think that there have been some signs of strain. And I think the way in which that's most evident is how you've seen that some of these private equity backed REs that have gone through two, three, even four um, exchanges between different private equity firms. Well, those firms have gotten extremely levered. They have high cost of debt service, the cost of capital for for additional M&A and buying those smaller firms that contribute incrementally to their cash flow, you know, 
it's a lot harder to raise the cash needed in a higher interest rate environment to make those deals in a higher interest rate environment. Mm -hmm. So the sign of strain that I've seen is that you've seen several firms go through multiple smaller capital raises to get cash onto the balance sheet, whether that's in the form of selling preferred equity, selling additional debt capital at terms that'd be considered extremely unfavorable the last couple of years. So you've seen times like, okay, if this firm has gone through four recaps and they're doing a preferred equity sale just to raise $150 million or $300 million, well, that's a red, that's a red flag. Right. That's really interesting. Um, we've talked a bit about the economic factors influencing this, this trend. Um, I wanted to ask you about regulation, though. I just wondered, particularly, you know, in around 2020, say, when you noticed a lot of this picking up, did regulation, did the regulator respond in any way to, um, yeah, to this uptick in like mergers and acquisitions in the market? Um, I, I would say not necessarily. I mean, the SEC has definitely made several actions when it comes to how REs operate on a daily basis. But to the extent of my knowledge, I mean, I haven't seen much messaging from the SEC or other regulators indicating that they want to put the brakes on this sort of M&A activity. Because mm -hmm. it doesn't, I mean, what the SEC is really focused on is less how REs relate to each other and their ownership as opposed to their underlying relationship and the overall obligation they have to their individual clients. Mm. So in terms of a change to the regulatory regime, it's really more about how RAs market themselves for client acquisition, um, the standards and duties of care that RAs have to their clients, and then you know obligations that they have in terms of data protection, how they can properly market to prospects. Mm. So more so regulation on the individual underlying client relationship than in terms of how these REAs are being smashed together or how their ownership is affected. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, sure. I think some of the listeners will be uh, thinking that this all sounds quite similar to um, uh, you know, a sort of reg regulatory package that's that's coming in at, at the end of this month uh, called the Consumer Duty, which is all about how the advice funds relate to the client, how they service the client. Just a final question on, on the M&A in this market. Obviously, we've talked a bit about valuation and the, and the financials and how that's affecting firms. But how has that uptick in uh, consolidation, uh, sorry, how has that uptick in acquisitions impacted culture? I mean, it's such a normal story in the US market now, right? So it's funny that you mentioned that because this is sort of a slowly developing trend is that as these firms have gotten larger and larger and brought more advisors under their belt and under their kind of corporate home, you've seen a lot of firms, maybe the second generation advisor who didn't get equity in the transaction when their company sold to one of these larger serial acquirers. Well, they have no stake in the larger organization, so they leave and they try to take their clients with them, and then the larger organization sues them for violating their non-compete or non-solicitation clauses in their contracts. So, because would those would those clauses normally, you know, require like a 12-month Yes, period? 12 months or two years. Now, so, there's been some legislation and some action by the Biden administration to try to rent, to try to basically eliminate a lot of non-compete clauses in employee contracts, but that's a separate issue. But basically, you've seen a lot of advisors who leave these large firms after an acquisition. Well, right. these larger RA acquirers 
the whole point of those M&A transactions is that they keep the underlying client relationship. They keep the cash flows coming from those client portfolios. Well, if those advisors walk out the door, then the price that you paid to buy an RAA, that RAA, you basically paid for nothing. So they have to find a way to retain the clients. They have to find a way to retain the advisors. And so they find ways to do that either by hook or by crook. So you can either incentivize that second generation, those underlying client relationships, um, to stick around by either equitizing them or giving them cash or an ounce, or you can sue them if they try to leave. So it's the carrot or the stick. Okay. And how common is the suing? Um, I mean, we're writing stories about this pretty much on a weekly basis. Wow. That's, an, that's quite something. Ian, something you, you mentioned to me a couple of weeks ago was um, an issue when it comes to firms doing their succession planning. What's the issue with the, with so the succession planning? You see that a lot of these small to mid-sized REAs are either owned by a single founder proprietor or by a small cadre of co-founders or top executives or a family. And so the issue is that you know those have been closely held businesses for decades in a lot of instances where the founder or the small group of founders has held on to all that equity. Mm. And their business is worth a lot more now than it was when they started. Uh, and the issue is, you know, if your business is probably going to get 50, 60, 70 million dollars on the open market, you know, how are you going to have your second generation employees who don't have the same net worth or paper net worth that you have, they can't afford to buy that equity. And so if you can't afford to sell the firm internally, you have to sell it in the interest of yourself if you're trying to retire, you sell it to someone who will. And usually the firms that can pay those prices are conveniently the institutionally backed firms with private equity money that are paying those multiples in the first place going after the multiple arbitrage. So you're, what you're seeing is that inability for these firms to finance their own succession plan, it's a downstream effect of all the private equity and interest in the industry because the PE firms invest in these largest REAs at incredibly high valuations. Those incredibly highly valued REAs then seek to acquire smaller firms at high but not quite as high valuations and go for the multiple arbitrage when the larger entity sells. And because those deals with the higher value REAs, those sub-acquisitions, are valued at a certain point, well then those set the baseline standard for all those firms that haven't sold yet. And so if you're a business owner, you have no reason to sell your practice at to your employees at a severely below market rate. You're going to want to get market rate or even better if you really high value your business. And so the end result is, well, if you're trying to get 60, 70, 80 million dollars for the company that you founded and your employees can't gen can't put up the cash to buy it, which they presumably can't because they've been W2 salaried employees probably making you know, six figures, but not enough to generate the net worth that can buy it, that can cut a check that big. Well, then your only option is to sell to someone who can, which then kind of keeps the cycle going. Mm. And what do, what do those differences look like that we're talking about in terms of the, you know, a potential sale price if they're selling to those like institutional, institutional buyers versus, you know, if they're just... So the median, so a lot of M&A consultancies have the median REA valuation, just the you know, 50% above, 50% below for any RA of any size is about nine to 10 times earnings, depending on who you, depending on who you, on who you trust. And this, these largest firms, the institutionally class firms, while they're regularly generating earnings multiples of anywhere from 18 times earnings to 20 plus earnings, 
you're looking at a massive, massive delta between the median valuation and what the valuation these firms are getting on the top end of the market. Again, from a kind of culture standpoint, do you hear about the complications of that that can cause if, you know, you've got a, a, a long kind of trusted uh, succession plan that's, you know, just not not worth the money? Well, there's also a little bit of selection bias involved here because there are acquirers that offer every type of affiliation model. There are some that'll let you just kind of go off, keep doing your own thing. They just want to stake in your cash flows. They just want the money. They don't care about integrating you into a large organization. Whereas there are firms that'll want you to take on their name and branding, become employees of the larger organization, and adapt to their culture. And so if that's the type of firm you're going to sell to, you're naturally, during a brokered sale process, going to gravitate to someone who at least appears to have a roughly similar or complementary culture to what you've run inter- to what you've run internally. So in general, you know, if you're trying to select for culture as opposed to the check, I mean, there's dozens and dozens of these serial acquirers out there. Mm. You can find someone that aligns with your values. Mm. Mm. Um, something a trend that you have picked up on in in your reporting is, uh, you know, the mergers of of our of the mergers of RIAs and um, firms opting for that approach rather than looking for a, a much larger buyer. Um, what, you know, how common is that and, and what are the advantages in that approach? Well, you've started to see more mergers, you've started to see more mergers of equals. And I think you're gonna actually see this a little bit, a little bit more even on the top end of the market, just because you know, we talk about um, private equity investors sustaining these valuations and validating them. Well, the question is, all right, what's the end game? I mean, you can't trade between middle market private equity firms forever. There has to be some sort of end game. And so the options are either an IPO or a sale to an institutional class private equity firm like the Carlisles of the world. Um, you can sell it to a strategic investor or acquirer like a bank or an asset manager. But the issue with that is that a lot of these advisors get into the independent wealth management business because they don't want to work for a bank or an asset manager. Yeah. So, you know, your other option is really merging with a peer, finding someone that's similar to you, and that's your end game is merging with a strategic strategic buyer. So I think that that's emerging as an option when all the other outcomes look, when all the other outcomes look bad is that, all right, well, at least we're still an RIA. We're not owned by a large organization that we don't trust, and we have scale. You know, who knows? Maybe we can go public ourselves one day, although we can get into that. There's a lot of factors that are sort of putting the brakes on these firms entering the public markets. Yeah. I mean, can you expand on some of those factors? Because it's a real kind of, um, it's a real trend here, right? That that a lot of, well, hardly any advice businesses are are reaching that IPO stage, which, you know, one might expect is kind of the end game of, of receiving external backing, external funding in the yeah. first place. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the issue is that, you know, a lot of people who are kind of RSA, RA industry proponents, they sort of argue that the public markets don't value RAs the way that they should. And the argument is that the public markets generally value RAs more like asset managers, which trade at a much lower earnings multiple and are in, you know, they're in a state of secular decline because those outflows, they're not stopping anytime soon. They're generating cash flow, but it's depreciating cash flow. And so the issue is, and there have been several firms, I mean, Focus Financial Partners is a serial acquirer of RAAs. They went public in 2018. Uh, Their market performance, I believe, they underperformed 
the S&P 500 in the five-year span since they went public in 2018. So, I mean, I wrote a story as of, it was as of early June, and Focus had gained 38.1%, while the S&P gained 54.7% in that time. That's a massive delta. That's a massive mm-hmm. delta in performance. So they decided, all right, you know, we're not going to be in the public markets anymore. We'll sell ourselves to a private equity firm, just go back private. So they yeah. didn't even, that deal's going to probably going to close, I think, next week. They didn't even make it five years as a public company. Right. Um, there have been firms that have talked about, I mean, I mentioned Dynasty. They wanted to go public. They abandoned that plan in favor of taking money from Avery Partners, which is a private equity firm, and Charles Schwab. So the issue is, you know, we talked about all these earnings multiples, the 14, 15, 16, 20x plus. Well, those are all well and good, but the only you're not going to get that number really validated unless a strategic is willing to pay that multiple or a company trades public at that multiple. And the reality is that if you're going if you're already going public right now, you're not going to get a 15, 16, 17, 8x multiple. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to get a 6 to 8x multiple. So all that money, that multiple, instead of having multiple expansion, multiple arbitrage, you're having multiple compression if you go public in this kind of environment where that's where that's where these wealth managers are valued. And all you're doing if you're going public in that in that market is you're just lighting a bunch of private equity investors' money on fire. And all those other valuations, they become rendered null and void instantly. So there's no incentive for any of these firms to go public anytime soon because all you're going to do is just compress the mul- compress the actual multiple. The issue you mentioned of um, you know markets almost not being able to sort of pull apart the differences between you know your asset managers and your your financial advice firm that's that's in the that's in the public markets that's IPO'd is that just kind of like an institutionalized issue or is there you know could could we could we see the end of that could there be more kind of appealing um valuations for for these businesses in the in the public markets i mean on one level i think that's kind of a question above my above my pay grade <laughs> but you know i mean there was a firm called uh Tiedemann advisors which merged with a british firm called Avarium investments who i'm sure your readers have heard of and they completed a merger through a blank check company through a spac and, you know, that debuted around, I think, like $10, maybe a little bit less. Well, you know, that thing plunged nearly 50% in about six months when, after it hit the public markets in January. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not sure what there needs to be in place to generate a shift in mindset. But right now, the public markets don't view the cash flows the same way the private equity investors do. And unless someone takes that, someone tries to take that step to be a first mover again, um, there's no incentive for anybody to, st- to step out anytime soon. Mm. So I think you're just going to see these firms continue to trade between these private equity fir- between these private equity firms for the next couple of years. And the question is, you know, what happens three, four years from now when we're in, if we're still in a high rate environment and the market might not necessarily be all the way back? You know, what happens? What's the end game there? And that can get ugly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, perhaps to avoid being you know, all doom and gloom about about what's happening here. I mean, you, you mentioned the kind of higher rate environment that we're in. Um, is that promising at all, though, for 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 these valuations? I mean, because surely, high, you know, higher rates meaning higher cost of capital would then mean higher value of the the equity of some of these businesses, right? I mean, I mean, the valuations are trending up. It's just they might not necessarily trend up as quickly. It might not necessarily trend up as quickly trend up as quickly you know i think ultimately i mean look 
I'll go back, you know, we can kind of go full circle. I mean, the end of the day is that these businesses generate a lot of strong, steady, predictable, free cash flow. As long as that exists and that's not going to change anytime soon, I mean, the underlying thesis for investing in a wealth manager remains pretty sound. It's just a question of, all right, how much leverage should we be, should we be putting on this thing? Mm. That, I think, might be the operative lesson of what we're seeing in this current environment. Okay. And I mean, the leverage is coming from private equity investors yes, primarily, exactly. right? Every recap they ha- every recapitalization that these firms have is another couple turns of leverage from private equity firms. I mean, there have been firms that have been as much as 8x levered. Ian, it's been such an interesting conversation and, and hearing from you. So thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any questions about this episode, uh, you can email me, uh, nblackburn at citywide.co.uk. And can they email you as well, Ian? Yes, that's iwenick, I-W-E-N-I-K, at citywireusa.com. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone, for listening.